Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Fellow superheroes, the evil robot Stupendo has teamed up with a secret basket of super deplorables. Never before has the Justice League of America faced such a potent enemy. All right, what do you need me to do, Batman? Just a second, Wonder Woman. First of all, Flash, run really fast into the middle of them. Superman, fly at them and then land on them and punch them. Green Lantern, make that thing that does the thing. Aquaman, attack them with a navy of killer sharks. Robin and I will catapult into the middle of them and crack their deplorable skulls. Okay, what about me, Batman? I was getting to that. Wonder Woman, we're going to need you back here on phones. Also, if the battle goes on for very long, we're going to get hungry. Could you phone in a sandwich order to the Super Deli? The menu is taped to the wall over there. And remember, Aquaman does not eat tuna. This is crazy. I have more powers than most of you. I can run 60 miles an hour and lift a 50,000-pound boulder over my head. I can repel bullets with my magic bracelets. I am technically a demigod. You and Robin are like a couple of antiques dealers compared to me. Also, your plan, it's really stupid. Nobody's questioning your powers, but we all think it would be just horrible if a woman got hurt. And we all feel our unit cohesion is better without the distraction of female combatants. This is What does my sex have to do with beating up bad guys? Well, for example, sometimes Aquaman is a real and one of us will turn to him and say, stop being such a But if we said that to you, it might sound wrong. But I'm not an I'm stronger and braver than any of you. I'm an Amazon. Uh, I keep forgetting that. Look, if we let you fight with a forward unit, would you help me out with a returns problem I'm having? I ordered some bat ropes, but they came in the wrong size. But when I tried to send them back... I'm not that kind of Amazon, you moron. I'm surrounded by losers, and somehow I have to beg them for the chance to put my body on the line. Maybe this radio show will help. And now, in the event of war, he's classified as a conscientious coward, Colin McEnroe. That's right. I'm I'm personally not seeking these opportunities, nor have I ever. But there are people who do. There are people who want to serve this country. Uh, they want to serve these country, this country sometimes in forward combat positions. Uh, and a lot of those people are women. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, uh, the, the changes uh, that are happening in the military and the changes that aren't happening in, the, happening in the military and maybe the changes that are not happening in the way they're supposed to happen. One of the occasions for doing that uh, is a new play at the Hartford Stage Company. Uh, it's called Queens for a Year. Uh, it's written by T.D. Mitchell, a playwright, screenwriter, uh, writer for several seasons of Army Wives on Lifetime. She's uh, here in studio with me. The play's up at the Hartford Stage Company and runs through October 2nd. I've seen it already. Uh, I'm imagining a lot of you eventually will, too. Also, joining us from uh, the studio of NPR in Culver City, California, Wendy Barranco, former medic for the U.S. Army who served nine months in Tikrit, uh, Iraq. Joining us by Skype is Kate Germano, uh, retired lieutenant.
lieutenant colonel from the United States Marine Corps and currently the chief operating officer uh, for the Service Women's Action Network. So, TD, as we talk today, I mean, in some ways we have to kind of walk an interesting knife's edge because we really don't want to talk about women in the military as victims. That's mainly not what they are. In fact, what they what they are, what they want to be is kind of the opposite of that. They want to be uh, serving and competing on, on a level fl- playing field with men. Uh, and for the most part, they aren't victims. On the other hand, there's a lot of stuff uh, that has accompanied this transition uh, that that's appalling that and that, that falls into categories like harassment uh, and sexual assault and, and at a more subtle level, just the the diminution uh, and the belittling of women's abilities. And we'll sort of come to that in a second. But you chose in this play to focus at least partly, not exclusively, but partly on the issue of sexual assault. Um, Tell us a little bit about your thinking there. Well, it came out of interviews I did with multiple females who'd served in multiple conflicts over the years, Uh, World War II veteran women, um, recent conflict veteran women, and over and over again, the discrimination they fight against is it's cultural. It's embedded in the language utilized by the by the military. It is um, affected by the necessary dehumanization process that goes on in order to create uh, frontline infantry who are ready to take up arms. So what you're saying there is that this is, I mean, part of the struggle obviously is that this isn't the same as working at a public radio station or a law firm or a nice restaurant. The people who are attracted to this environment are probably going to be a little bit different, maybe a little bit harder to control in this way. And then they go through a process, which in some ways emphasizes some of their more aggressive tendencies. There's that. Uh, There's definitely that. I mean, frankly, of the women I've met, uh, the vast majority of them I would prefer to have covering my back than um, a lot of the other folks I see uh, armed and on the front lines. Uh, I think that the skills women have are are grossly underutilized by our military. Uh, The way we respond to conflict, the problem-solving skills, the leadership skills, uh, we're actually missing out on on a great opportunity by not more fully integrating females into the force. But it is at a significant risk to those females. Um, We're going to talk a lot today about the the process of integrating females into those forces, but let's just stay for a moment with the question of sexual assault. Um, Last week, there was a commander-in-chief forum featuring Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and uh, Matt Lauer. Uh, Donald Trump was asked a question about sexual assault in the military. Um, Here's how that unfolded. In 2013, you tweeted this, quote, 26,000 unreported sexual assaults in the military, only 238 convictions. What did these geniuses expect when they put men and women together? Well, it is it is a it is a correct tweet. There are many people that think that that's absolutely correct. And we need to have a strength. So this and we should need have to been have... expected. And does that mean the well, only way to well, fix it is to take women out of the military? And, and by the way, since then, it's gotten worse. No, not to take them out, but something has to be happened. You, right now, part of the problem is nobody gets prosecuted. There are no consequences. 
All right. Well, uh, you can't get more profound than something has to be happened. Uh, however, uh, let's uh, kind of poke at this a little bit more. Uh, Wendy Barranco, for you, this is uh, not an abstraction. It's a reality. It's a rea- reality that you lived with in your time of active service. Maybe I'd just first ask you, I don't know whether you were watching that particular exchange live or whether you saw it later, but uh, how did that go over in your world? Well, for one, it's shameful, first and foremost. Um, You're talking about possibly the future leader of our country, um, as scary as that might sound. And then secondly, we're asking a question of a person that never served in the military and is, in fact, a draft dodger. Um, And then thirdly, you know, he's also a man. He then proceeded to mansplain um, his his rebuttal to that question. Something needs to have happened. What does that mean? What exactly does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I would like to see a concrete plan, some type of um, justice and accountability. You know, what we're asking for is transparency, accountability, and justice. You don't fix these problems by saying something needs to happen. I want to see some concretes. I want to see some tangibles. I want to see a plan of action moving forward. And we didn't get that. Um, on the other hand, um, this is something that you've had some direct experience with. I don't know if you had a chance to talk to Donald Trump. Maybe what would you say to him, A, in terms of your direct experience, and B, what you'd really like to hear out of a potential leader? Yeah, I mean, I would like to see some concrete, tangible plans, like I mentioned, on everything, on our our foreign policy, on economics, on what he plans to do about our national budget. Um, but, you know, that's that's like talking to a wall with Donald Trump. You're not going to get um, clear answers. And I think that's where Matt failed, Matt Lauer failed, because he dre- he did treat him with white gloves and he didn't take him to the mat or, or the ropes um, the same way that he did with Hillary Clinton. Um, I don't uh, want you to have to uh, share details or anything, but have you, uh, as while an active duty service person, experienced sexual aggression from fellow soldiers? Yes, unfortunately I have. Um, Initially it started when I first entered into the military. In fact, I hadn't even been officially integrated into the military. It started with my recruiter. I was 17 years old. Um, and I was sexually assaulted by him. Luckily, I was able to fight him off, and I didn't go into anything further. When I was deployed, I was assaulted consistently by one of my colleagues um, of the same rank as myself. And then on a daily basis, I was also harassed um, by a superior of mine, a major. He was a trauma surgeon. So not only was I trying to focus just on staying alive in a hostile environment, but I also had to look over my back consistently 24-7 and worry about um, my own brothers in arms, uh, quote-unquote, trying to make some assault or or have an attempted rape against me. And that did happen. Um, So I think we miss out on this dynamic. When we talk about the stresses on women, I think it's very much unfair um, that we have to face um, these dangers, not only uh, in a war zone, like I said, in Iraq, but also from our very own people that are supposed to be watching our back. So in my opinion, there's failed leadership, there's failed systems, there's failed checks and balances, um, and we need to look at the whole system. So what is leading to these sexual assaults? What is leading to this high incidents of rape? And furthermore, why are they not being brought to accountability? Why is there no justice? Why is why are only 10% of cases brought to prosecution actually serve time? 
Kate Germano, um, as you're listening to this, I mean, one thing that we should say is that as this policy of the integration of women into combat, uh, starting with a policy change by Leon Panetta in 2013 and culminating, at least theoretically, with uh, Ash Carter's last set of directives, I think in March of this year, um, you know, the, the point of greatest resistance has been the U.S. Marine Corps, right? The, the Marine Corps has kind of said straight along, you know, there's just some situation where it's not going to be appropriate. We've got studies that show that combat units uh, are faster and more effective when they're when they're single sex, when they're uh, when they're not mixed gender. Uh, they've got a lot of reasons for not wanting to do this. Although, as I'm listening to Wendy Barranco, I'm thinking, well, I mean, can can you ever really t- test fairly the efficacy of women if they're constantly worried not only about danger from the enemy, but danger from their own ranks? Well, I would I want to make it clear that first of all, sexual assault only affects 1.5% of the active duty force. So that that's the first thing. It, this is the issue that everyone hears about and it's the first thing that people think about when they think of women in the military, but I'm not denigrating the fact that it's it's too high of a number, but 1.5% of the entire active duty force is not as large as the public's perception of this problem that women face. I'd also like to point out that 50% of all sexual assaults estimated involved men on men. Mm-hmm. And so Donald Trump's comments were inappropriate you know, for any number of reasons, particularly because they're not based on facts, if you just consider those two points alone. So you know, the other thing that I'd like to say is the, the Marine Corps has been the least resistant or the most resistant, excuse me, to change. Um, And if you compare them to the Army, the Army is doing everything they can to embrace this change. And it's reflected from uh, in their commander, the commander in chief uh, statements, the uh, service chief statements to the Hill, all the way down to the lowest private and PFC, the most junior person in the Army. They're getting the message from the top down that women are going to be embraced in these roles. And that is being reflected in everyone's actions in the chain. The Marine Corps, on the other hand, has been uh, staunchly resistant to this change, and that is reflected in everything the Marine Corps is doing. Um, the Commandant just came out with this Facebook commercial that's really cool, and it's got you know a lot of cool vehicles being driven by Marines, and it's got stuff being blown up, and and you know Marines on patrol, patrol, but there's not a single female featured in the commercial. So. You know, that sets the tone for what happens with the general masses in the military, and that's what's really unfortunate. Um, So I'd just like to make that point. And then the Marine Corps also has the issue of segregated training, and I'm sure we'll talk much more about that. But, you know, when Marines are brought up from the day that they join and they see that women are held to lower standards in a segregated environment and the perception is that it's easier for the women to become Marines and earn that title— that sets the tone for everything those women are going to experience for the rest of their time in the military. And that's really unfortunate. Well, let's talk about it some more right now. So you're saying in some ways they're being set up to fail simply by kind of a two-track system. Absolutely. So separate, first of all, has never been proven to be equal for any other aspect of society. And so what happens is, you know, women are recruited. First of all, they're not recruited the same way that males are recruited. Um, You know, the Marine Corps just recently in the last 30 days has made a public statement saying that they're 
doing this new thing by recruiting female athletes. Well, I've got news for you. That has been Marine Corps recruiting doctrine since 1973 when the all-volunteer force was established. So you can't reward the service for doing now what they failed to do for 30 years. You can't applaud them for that. The bottom line is it's progress, but it's not all in the right direction and it's not at a fast enough pace. So the women that we've had recruited into the military, into the Marine Corps specifically for so long, have been older than the average male recruit. They've been in uh, a lesser physical fitness uh, state, less prepared mentally and physically to go to recruit training. And more importantly, they've been held to a lower standard by their recruiters. They aren't expected necessarily to participate in weekly physical fitness events with the recruiters. They're allowed not to push themselves as hard as they should be. And so right off the bat, their peers, right before they go to recruit training, are seeing that these women are being allowed to slack off. And then they get to recruit training, and because the training is segregated, there is, again, there's a perception that we don't really know how women Marines are made. And so it must be easier because we can't see it and we don't really see them being challenged. And so that really sets the tone um, for how those women are perceived. And then on top of that, um, statistically, women have been allowed to underperform on the recruiting boat for years and years, for decades. Uh, you know, whether it's the rifle range, whether it's academics or close order drill, the women on average have never been able to achieve the level of performance of the male battalions. And that's black and white data. And so unfortunately, when we talk about how we make Marines and what a measure of success is, it's interesting that for the men, we consider those statistics as an indicator of success or failure. Um, but for women, we don't do that. All right. There's a, a lot to unpack there. Um, T.D. Mitchell, I'm going to come back to you for a second here. One of the things that you did, first of all, I, w I want to say about this play. So this play involves four generations of women, all of them with relationships, each generation anyway, uh, with relationships uh, to the armed services and specifically the Marines. They they have been Marines. They want to be Marines. There's kind of a funny little moment where one of the characters who who uh, was basically forced out of the Marines because she was a lesbian, uh, is talking about trying to make a comeback. Uh, but I think she's a little bit too old to do the Marine thing. And she says, yeah, but she could do it in the Navy. And her tone of voice and the other characters' reactions suggest, you know, that that's really not any of them what any of them want to be. They don't want to be in the Navy. They want to be Marines. You talked uh, to a lot of people about this. So, you know, given, given how much more resistant Marine culture seems to be to women, why do women want to be Marines? Well, there are a, a lot of different factors. I mean, a, a number of the young women I talked to said I wanted to find the most badass. I hope I can say that on radio. You just uh, did. Okay, I, <laughs> they want to find the most difficult job there and take it on, mm -hmm. and that is is specifically what draws them to the Marine Corps. You've got the lowest percentage of women in the Marine Corps than in any of the other branches, including the Coasties. Mm. And so, you know, y you are signing up for a, a level of an expectation of toughness that, that these women want to have and want to feel and want to own. Um, there's some very surprising statistics about how many young women uh, enlist in the Marine Corps who had previously experienced uh, some sort of sexual assault or violence in their home. I think a lot of these women join because they think the Marine Corps is going to toughen them up and make them invincible 
to such things that they have previously suffered. Uh, the irony is it's uh, not necessarily the best environment in which to do that. Um, Wendy Barranco, is in fact uh, the Army doing that much better a job? Uh, I mean, uh, Kate had some uh, very nice things to say uh, about the Army. What's your experience in terms of training, in terms of the integration of women and, and, and making it, I guess, sort of, you know, a, a bi-gender culture as opposed to women attempting to thrive within a male culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, Colonel uh, Germano alluded to a very important point, right, is is the fact that we have policies on the books. They're terrible, um, first and foremost. But you also want to create a culture, right, a system where uh, survivors can come forward and perpetrators will get justice. And currently we do not have that on any level in the Army or, or I would venture to say in any military branch. Um, and so that's, for me, the priority is how do you create a culture where women are welcome where women are equal when if something happens people are not held responsible people are not held accountable and there's no transparency in that it's very easy for a commander in the army um, to get rid of a survivor simply because they just don't want to deal with the paperwork or they don't want to deal with the prosecution or they don't want to deal with the headache um, so what they do is they, they brush it under the rug so I really think um, you know, we needed to be talking about the system that enables this, the system that enables this incidence of rape, of sexual assault, um, not only when we're in garrison and peace here in the United States, but also when we're deployed. So I think that's a huge marker for how we do our job efficiently. How am I supposed to, ex- how am I expected to do my job efficiently if I can't even have my back covered by my brothers? Right. Um, So I think the Army is doing a better job than the Marine Corps. But I would also venture to say that the Marine Corps is an entirely different beast. Um, You know, as as uh, Colonel Germano alluded to, it's it's different. The training is definitely different. The brainwashing is different. It's a lot more hardcore. um, And you're considered the best of the best. Right. In the Army, you you can joke a little bit about how we get screwed over. Um, how our uniforms are silly, right? There's there's a little bit of, of humor there. In the Marine Corps, you talk about some. You talk about the Marine Corps in a negative way. You're gonna have a fight. <laughs> it's just not gonna be good. So it, we're talking about different levels here of indoctrination, of dehumanization, of our missions and our goals. Um, you know, I just want to stay with you for one moment, Wendy, and just ask also, I mean, it seems to me that one of the issues for uh, each branch of service is not simply how women are treated in combat units, but who who they can turn to about anything. As they look up the chain of command, do they see other women? Do they see enough other women in places uh, of authority so that, uh, you know, it's not it's not just uh, an enlisted woman trying to thrive and prosper within any given unit, but but a culture that includes right. women in leadership positions. Maybe you can talk about that. Absolutely. You raised a, a, a very salient point, a very important point, I believe, because 15 percent of the army are females. So you can imagine that the leadership, the chain of command is lacking that representation that we have um, in, in just being a minority. Um, when I was deployed and a sergeant, someone that was higher and above me um, in my chain of command, heard the incident, heard what was going on when I was being sexually assaulted and, and, and in fact was an attempted rape, she later approached me and she discouraged me, discouraged me from reporting to higher up. 
She knew that I was disposable. She knew that I was a specialist. She knew that my chances of even getting anywhere with saying something were not going to be fruitful or productive or even see the inside uh, of a military court. So that, that gives you just a little bit of of uh, a view, right, into how these cases are being treated. When you look at the actual reporting, one of the one of the ways to report is unrestricted. The other way to report is restricted. Neither of those guarantees any kind of justice or any kind of accountability. And like I said, it's very easy for leadership to throw these cases under the rug or to transfer the uh, the more disposable person, if you will, to another unit to get rid of them. So we have. A a systemic institutional problem within the military that creates this culture where people do not want to come forward. In fact, the last thing they want to do is come forward because they know that the repercussions are going to be negative against the survivor. So I think that is a huge piece of this puzzle that we're missing, right, With before it gets to all these high, incidence, high incidences um, of sexual assault and of rape. And as Colonel Germano mentioned, 53% of all sexual assaults in the military are men on men, right? Mm-hmm. So even though women are a minority, we are suffering the brunt um, of, of sexual harassments, but we also have to take a look at this male-on-male sexual assault and also rape, um, which is, I believe, a symptom of the misogynist, patriarchal, um, and xenophobic uh, culture that the military kind of um, is is creates and is is a host to. No, we're going to come back into. I'm going to ask one more question of TD, but then we're going to come back. We're going to have a larger conversation about whether or not that uh, patriarchal and uh, misogynistic culture is also mirrored in a lot of our popular culture. Whether um, in creating a culture that looks at military life, we're doing a particularly good job of maybe counteracting that. But you know, because of something that uh, Wendy Barranco uh, brought up, um, you know, TD, there's a moment in your play. Um, where the young woman who has been assaulted and is pursuing a a claim uh, is being cross-examined and being cross-examined in a a manner that is so pitiless uh, and so aggressive that it's hard to watch. It's just hard to watch the questions she's being asked, the things she's even being asked to do to kind of illustrate what happened to her. And the person doing it is a woman. Um, and and I'm sure for the entire audience, that's also hard to watch and hard to process. Um, just listening to Wendy, it made me think, well, maybe Wendy is talking about something that has something to do with why you made that choice. Why is that person asking the questions uh, in, in such a demeaning, degrading, aggressive and and uh, and belittling, intimidating way? Why is that woman? Uh, why is that character a woman? It's unfortunately based on an actual Article 32 hearing. And uh, it the the witness was kept on the stand for many days, for many hours, and uh, was uh, asked all sorts of uh, one would argue in a civilian court utterly uh, irrelevant uh, lines of questions related to uh, her own sex life, her own sexual history. Uh, and the woman asking the questions, uh, I mean, the person asking the questions was indeed a female. So though I did not uh, quote directly from that transcript, unfortunately, uh, the scene in my play is a very, very short person, a short version of a very, very uh, real 
event. Now, since that time, there was a a congressional action to change somewhat the uh, structure of Article 32 hearings. Um, There's not quite a civilian court equivalent. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit like a grand jury. It's a little bit like a pre-court hearing, pre-trial hearing, but we don't have anything quite like it in the uh, civilian justice system. Um, it's it's part of what is a problem uh, in terms of pursuing these cases. The fact that it was a female uh, JAG officer defending the accused is is just you know you're 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 the lawyer who's assigned to the case. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about the way women in the military are represented in the media with all three of our guests. We didn't really plan it that way, I swear to God. But uh, T.D. Mitchell's sitting right here. So uh, excellent uh, Jeff Cohen uh, promo uh, leads to this conversation. T.D. Mitchell, well, I don't have to tell you who she is because you just heard. Uh, the, the show does run through October 2nd, uh, and uh, so you have time to go see it at Hartford Stage. Wendy Barranco, a uh, former medic for the U.S. Army, uh, served nine years, uh, nine months in uh, Tikrit, uh, Iraq, is joining us from Culver City, NPR Studios there. And Kate Germano, retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Marine Corps, currently the chief operating officer for the Service Women's Action Network is joining us by uh, Skype. Kate, I'm going to have you get uh, this conversation going uh, in in this segment. Um, uh, We do want to talk a little bit about how women are portrayed. Uh, Obviously, there's a necessity for plays like the one that we're talking about right now that deal uh, with this kind of problem and and tell a much larger story. T.D. Mitchell's play tells a much, much larger story uh, about women in the military going way back into their history, into the Civil War. We'll talk about that as well. Um, But uh, uh, there is a complaint that we hear, that we read, that women uh, in the military are quite often represented as people having some kind of problem. They've run into some kind of problem. They're the victims of some kind of abuse or discrimination. They're on the short end of some kind of stick. And so, I mean, is there a sense uh, among women who are uh, veterans or active duty women in the military that they want to see themselves doing their jobs as opposed to some of these other issues? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the biggest problems that we face is that we are portrayed in the public's eye as victims, as you said. And it's really unfortunate because what we're doing is we're perpetrating, uh, we're creating a, you know, a self-perpetrating cycle where women can never be considered warriors. In the veteran and military communities, what women face is that their service is not necessarily raised to the same level in terms of the respect that they're given as their male counterparts. Um, One thing that women who have been polled over and over and over again say, whether they're currently active duty, they're in the reserves, or they're veterans, is that when they're out in public and they're wearing a a, a pin or some uh, article of clothing that has, uh, you know, their affiliation with the service, they're never asked, 
when did you serve? Where did you serve? Were you deployed? What they're asked is, uh, when did your husband serve? Mm -hmm. What does your boyfriend do now that he's out of the military? And that's very, very unfortunate because right then and there, it sets the tone for how women's accomplishments are perceived by themselves and how they're perceived by society. So it is absolutely a problem. Um, I appreciate the fact that TD's play, it sounds like it speaks to the greater aspects of women in the service. But I think that the way that the, uh, you know, Congress has seized on the issue of sexual assault um, has unfortunately colored society's perception. Um, and with women becoming the largest segment or the fastest growing segment of the veteran population, unless something changes soon, um, it, it's really going to become unfortunate because we've got uh, the highest number of wartime serving deployed uh, women who've, who've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. And to have them get out of the military and feel that, you know, their service overseas wasn't a significant contribution. I mean, that that goes against everything that America stands for. Um, Wendy Barranco, it's one of the things that I did like about the Commander-in-Chief Forum is as you looked around that audience, uh, you started to see a lot of women. And as I mean, we read to get ready for the show this uh, kind of chilling piece in The New Yorker from a few years back. Uh, and one of the descriptions in it was a, of a, a woman veteran who had been pretty seriously injured uh, in an IED explosion, uh, terrible wounds to her face, both caused by the explosion itself and then the surgery that had to happen after it. She was being walked around a base, I think, by her husband. Husband. And somehow or other, people kept talking to her husband about what had happened to him in combat, although she's wearing these wounds uh, on her face. And, and, and uh, Wendy, I'm wondering if, that's, if that surprises you. I mean, Kate is suggesting there's almost an inability of uh, people in this society to process the word veteran and have that mean a woman, even if she's walking around with the wounds from her own combat. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not surprising, um, given that about 1% of our current American society has any links or serves in the military, um, as compared to previous years, which is very, very minimal. So you can imagine that the sacrifice that military families, military veterans are having to make um, it does not compare historically with the history of this country. Um, we're an all-time low with the share with the share of the burden um, by military families and by veterans. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that there's still this stereotype going around, and I'm just going to shatter it now, um, that women are not in the front lines. And even before the official legislation passed and it got signed and it got sealed and delivered, um, we were in the front lines. We, we have been in the front lines, at least since, since World War II, maybe not officially on the books on paper, but we have him somewhere or another been supported, um, supported the front lines or been in the front lines in some way. I mean, I know several uh, fellow women veterans who have been machine gunners, who have been in direct line of fire. Um, and I think this leads to a broader conversation about our, the current military tactics that we have um, employed in our illegal occupations with Afghanistan and Iraq. There is no front line. We are fighting guerrilla tactics. We are fighting guerrilla warfare. And by definition, that includes no front line. That's very blurred. I, I really would challenge anybody who is still um, trying to say that there is a front line somewhere to please show it to me because I didn't see it. 
Um, there, there is no definition for that. And I think that goes out the window. And so I'd like to shatter that stereotype. I'd like to help people understand that we have been serving uh, for a while now, whether officially or unofficially. Um, and whether people believe that or not, well, I mean, that's just not... Um, that doesn't really affect uh, the reality. But unfortunately, yes, we don't get the same amount of respect, unfortunately, as our male counterparts do. Um, And that's really shameful, not just because we don't get our due respect when it comes to, say, um, someone telling you thank you for your service, but that transfers directly into our medical care. That transfers directly into our benefits as veterans. And the VA is a straight representation of that, is a reflection of that. They fail miserably at catering for medical services for women. Um, They have long wait lists. Um, A lot of times the same very same doctors from the VA refused to treat women. I had a doctor tell me that, you know, he didn't come to the VA to treat women. And I said, well, I'm here now and I'm not going anywhere. And I think I deserve as much respect and as, as the same duty and the same services as my male counterparts. And so I haven't gone anywhere and I have been seeing him and I hold him to the line because that's his job. That's what he was hired for. So there's this huge discrepancy um, and lack of knowledge within our society about the contributions that women make in the military, the kind of uh, numbers that we make up and the dynamics. And that carries on as well into our foreign policy, right? With 1% of our society uh, are the ones that are bearing the brunt, um, or for lack of, of a better word, have the skin in the game, right? That affects our domestic policy. That affects our foreign policy. That makes our representatives, our elected rep- or bought representatives, um, that makes our representatives very much more likely to put us in the, in the line of danger, to put us and send us to some foreign and far-flung conflict when they themselves don't have any skin in the game, right? So that's changed dramatically, historically, um, the demographics that we see um, in the United States. Um, I want to come back to that whole question of who's got skin in the game, uh, but while we're on this particular subject. So, T.D., your play is a lot of things, but one thing it is uh, frequently is a history lesson. You've got these four generations uh, of women who've served in the Marines, and they're talking to each other, and they're talking to the uninitiated, and they're, uh, the young ones are, are getting some wisdom from the old ones. It seemed to be important for you to tell some of this story, a story of women in combat in the United States that does date back to the Civil War. Indeed. Uh, we have such a, a long-storied history of, of women who'd served I- across the branches, and it is um, very important, I think, for us to uh, understand, especially as our World War II veterans are, are slipping away from us, mm-hmm. you know, to understand that among those World War II veterans, you have women Marines, you have the WASP and the WAFs. Mm-hmm. We just had our first uh, wasp uh, interred at Arlington just in the past uh, two weeks. That was a, a very big deal. Um, the There is a serious uh, lack of historic uh, cultural understanding that uh, women have stepped up to serve well beyond the home front in our country. 
Um, we should say the Civil War story is kind of remarkable, too, because it involves a woman disguising herself as a man in order yes, to fight. The, yes, the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, it, it, it is considered Marine Corps lore. Some mm. people think of it as uh, absolutely absolutely true, and others say, no, 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 it's just a, you know, it's just a story. But there are uh, numerous documented cases of women serving in the Revolutionary War in disguise and the Civil War in disguise. Uh, it, it's It's been happening as long as we've been around as a country. Um, uh, we're also talking to a retired Lieutenant Colonel Kate Germano. Um, you know, as these conversations unfold, um, I, I'm sure that inevitably one thing that you hear, and, and I'm curious to know what you think of it, too, is, well, it, for in order for this to be completely true, it, it might be, it might be the case that someday, if the selective service were ever reinstituted, if we had anything resembling the draft that we've had in the past, we'd have to have a conversation about whether women would be required to register for selective service. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'd like to point out that Conversations actually taking place right now. In the last couple of days, the Republican Party made an in Congress to try to put part of uh, legislation into the NDAA for 2017, mandating women would not be allowed to register for the draft. And as the Service Women's Action Network, we believe that all women should be required to register. The, the stumbling block for registration has always been the ban on women serving in ground combat. And now that that no longer exists, there's no reason why women shouldn't have to bear their share of the burden of our national defense. So that discussion is already taking place. And unfortunately, Donald Trump's party is taking a, a stand and drawing a line in the sand on you know, where they stand when it comes to that issue. Um, you know, just because of a little bit of a Skype problem, we missed the beginning of your comments. You said that conversation conversations already taking place and taking shape. Yes. Just repeat that part for us. Yeah, so this is really interesting. So just in the past 48 hours since Congress returned from their August recess, the Repu- Republicans um, try are lobbying, actually, to include legislation in the 2017 NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, that says women will not be considered for registration for the draft. And, uh, you know, my point is that that discussion is already happening, but, you know, more so the stumbling block, again, for women not registering has always been the ban on uh, ground combat. And so since that ban has been lifted, we feel that women should have to register for the draft just as men do. All right. We're going to take a little break where we're going to come back. There's another piece of this we want to talk about. It has to do with the role of immigrants uh, in this whole story. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in our intro, and Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Now, back to Colin. You know, uh, tomorrow we are doing a show about uh, cyberpunk uh, and the way in which cyberpunk has become 
not the future, but uh, but modernity. It's the way we live right now. Uh, a lot of digital espionage, uh, a lot of issues about artificial intelligence, all the stuff that kind of fell under that umbrella. But it was also making me think as we got ready for today's show that, you know, to that question of how women in the army are depicted, the one time or the most often time that they are depicted as fully functioning, uh, active combat personnel is in science fiction. Uh, in the movie Aliens, uh, they are locked and loaded and ready to go uh, and fight that alien. Uh, that's the second alien movie. Um, in Starship Troopers, same deal. It's like in the future we can imagine that women are are full participants in, in, in military combat. It's just in the present that we seem to struggle with it a little bit more. Uh, here in studio is T.D. Mitchell. Uh, her play Queens for a Year is uh, premiering at the Hartford Stage. Uh, it started on September 8th. It's running through October 2nd. It looks at four generations of women who've been in the Marines uh, and a drama unfolding among them, but also the very close ties that exist among them that are connected to their veneration of, of military service. Uh, Wendy Barranco is joining us former medic for the U.S. Army, uh, served nine months in Tikrit, Iraq, uh, and Lieutenant Colonel retired Kate Germano from the U.S. Marine Corps, currently the chief operating officer for the women's the Service Women's Action Network. Um, Wendy Barranco, uh, at that now uh, infamous and much discussed on this show, Commander-in-Chief Forum, there was another question. There was a question uh, to Donald Trump about uh, what his attitude would be towards an undocumented person serving in the military as a path to citizenship. Um, once again, for you, this is not um, an abstract question or a speculative question. This is your uh, experience to a certain degree. So first of all, tell us about your experience in that regard. Yeah, um, I was actually born in Mexico, a small town in Mexico. I emigrated here uh, at the age of four at the request, of course, of, of my mother and father. And at the age of 17, uh, and when I say here, I mean Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, at the age of 17, I was recruited into the Army. Um, and at the age of 19, I was in Iraq, in Tikrit, Iraq, as you mentioned, uh, nine months. And I was done with my military obligation of three years at the age of 20. So when I came back, I couldn't even have a legal drink at the airport. So and there were several people uh, nice enough to, to buy me some drinks Um um, when they saw me in uniform. But, you know, I, I think it's very interesting, this question that you raise, because there seems to be a disparis- disparity between the stories that we tell ourselves and the actual factual truth that is going on. Um, you know, 40% of Civil War troops, 40% were immigrants. And that trend continues to this day, myself included. I achieved citizenship while I was in the military. Um, and, you know, the, the numbers state that recruiters don't discriminate. They have quotas to keep and they have numbers to keep up and they have leadership on their backs. Um, and so now we have this phenomena where undocumented uh, migrants are being for lack of a better word, um, forced into the military. Um, And then on the other end of that spectrum, we're seeing veterans actually deported. Um, I did a project not so long ago where I interviewed several deported veterans in Mexico. And my research dates this phenomena back to uh, Vietnam era. Um, So this is not something new that we've been doing as a country um, with 
with very bad foreign policy. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we like to believe that we're patriotic. We like to believe um, we have certain presidential candidates regurgitating the opinion that immigrants are are rapists, are bad, they're criminal. Um, but here I am, and here are several people um, outside in the world, in society, directly contradicting that statement um, because I served in the military honorably and was discharged and had no problems. Um, and so did very many other people. So I really would like to just, you know, question and bring into light this propaganda um, that we are being told and put forth um, that immigrants are bad, that they don't make contributions, that they're lazy, that they're et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because it's simply not true. Um, and I, did, I, think, I want to I follow up on one thing that you said, because it's startling sure. to me, and I think it's startling. So when you talk about the, the deported veteran support house yes. in, in Mexico, um, are you saying that uh, people who are undocumented were accepted into the service and possibly even deployed, and then yes, when they sir. came, then after they've given their service, then they're deported? Yes, sir. That's absolutely what I'm saying. And that's not an exclusive phenomena to Mexican nationals or even to, to Mexican-born immigrants. It's a worldwide uh, phenomena. If you contact deported uh, support uh, deported Veterans Support House in Tijuana, Mexico, you will find a wealth of information that shows deported veterans in Germany, in Jamaica, in Mexico, in Colombia. Um, and they're all, I think, worthy of receiving their health care benefits, the benefits that they uh, worked for and busted their butt for and served this country for. Um, so what we're seeing is actually deported veterans dying uh, while waiting for, let's say, medical treatment or waiting for their GI school benefits or waiting for just for the VA to give them the time of day um, to, to, to pay them back that, that promise that was made, right? If you serve, you will be taken care of. We will, we will take care of our returning veterans. So, yes, this is, this is happening, and this is something that we've been doing, um, according to my research, research, at least since the Vietnam era. It, does, it actually predates it predates Vietnam, and it's specific to periods of time times of war. So, if yeah. we're in a formalized peacetime, that program is not in place. But if we are in a in a period of uh, declared war, even the vague declared vaguely declared war on terror, then the policy is such that, assuming you have no criminal record, no you know you have you have no sort of uh, black marks uh, against you thus far as an immigrant, your service uh, results in citizenship. Now, it's supposed to be automatic, but sometimes the paperwork doesn't get all the way through. But there are many, many immigrants who uh, who actually go through the uh, their their oath and their uh, speaking their alliance to the flag and formally get their citizenship while they are for, forward deployed. So mm -hmm. we're we're having we're having. Uh, immigration uh, ceremonies in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in, uh, in Japan, in South Korea. I mean, it's, it's um, astonishing how people think they can 
be pro-military, pro-soldier, and still be anti-immigrant. Yeah, it doesn't it, really it, work. All right, we're going to have to stop now. I was hoping to get back to Kate Germano. We're out of time. This has been a fa- fascinating conversation. Thanks to retired Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Kate Germano. Thanks to Wendy Barranco, former medic for the U.S. Army. Thanks to playwright T.D. Mitchell. Her show is up at Hartford Stage right now. Queens for a year. Go see it. Let me hear you say it.